0: As you're turning, brief introduction. I'm a pastor in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. For those who don't know, that's right on the lake, about hour, hour and a half north of here. Um, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. This weekend, Maria is sitting up here in the front row. We have four kids. They're all back in Sheboygan. We kind of made this a little getaway weekend. It wasn't very long, but a little getaway weekend. So they're all back uh, worshiping at our home church. Um, We met Pastor Schmidt and Valerie in Egypt. Actually, Maria wasn't on this trip but I met them in Egypt of all places on a bus, and uh, we became fast friends and have known each other now for many, many years, and we are uh, all close friends. Um, I was at Northland Baptist Bible College, Northland International University, for 17 years. I taught there, was the dean of the School of Biblical Studies there for 12 years, and the Lord... uh, directed me away from the lectern full-time to the pulpit full-time, and we have been enjoying ministry now uh, in Sheboygan for seven years. But enough about me. Let's, we're not here to hear about our family. We're here to hear from God and to look into his word. Philippians 4.6 begins with these four words. Be anxious for nothing. <laughs> yeah, so you read those words, and you've maybe memorized this passage, and uh, this is the New King James, and the King James, it's uh, be careful for nothing. You read these words, be anxious for nothing, and, and here's what maybe happens. The response is to think, well, you know, those are, those, that's a great idea, Paul is right on there. I applaud him for what he's saying. I just wish I could kind of eventually get there, but for right now, I mean, I'm not there. I know I'm not there. I'm probably not going to be there anytime soon. Might I submit that there are two possible responses to the two verses we're going to look at today? One response is that of maturity, and the other is one of immaturity. An immature response looks at these words and says, it's good advice, maybe someday I'll get there. A mature response, on the other hand, takes this command, it's not a suggestion, very seriously. We're gonna look at two cross-references today. We'll start in uh, James, you don't have to turn there, but James chapter one, in verses 18 through 25, James talks about two responses to God's word. Do you know what illustration he uses? He uses the illustration, it's in, down in verses 22 through five, of a mirror. And he says, no one looks into a mirror and does nothing to fix their appearance and turns away and and just leaves. Unless it's my 15-year-old teenage son, then he probably doesn't fix his hair. But, you know, my wife would never do that. I would never do that if my hair is, you know, flopped over in the morning. I mean, I'm going to look in the mirror and, well, at least after coffee, I'm going to look in the mirror and I'm going to fix that hair, you know, get a little water, push it down, whatever, okay? You You don't look at your physical appearance in a mirror if you're just about ready to leave the house and think, meh, well, okay. Well, neither should we look at God's Word, which isn't a mirror of our face, but is instead a mirror of our soul, and see the, wow, we've got some real problems here, and then just walk away and, well, who cares, okay. That that is not a mature response to God's Word. In fact, how does James describe that kind of a response to the Word? He describes it with the two words, self-deceived. Only a self-deceived Christian is going to look at the Word, see his reflection in the mirror of the soul, and say, eh, have a 15-year-old teenage boy response? No, we won't. We shouldn't do that. So coming back to Philippians 4:6, be anxious for nothing. I have a friend named Oleg Korotky. He lives in Netanya, Israel, just outside of Tel Aviv. So. He is one of the founding members of the largest conservative Baptist seminary in Russia. And being from a Jewish descent, he emigrated from Russia after the school was up and running to start another school, Israel College for the Bible, in the greater Tel Aviv area. So this week, I mean, we're talking this week, you know, with the rockets coming from the Gaza Strip and especially from Hamas being lobbed out of Lebanon. He's in his study. He lives in a high-rise condominium apartment flat, whatever you want to call it, and, you know, overlooks the city. He's working, uh, looking out, you you know, with his desk facing the window, and he gets up and goes into the kitchen, I don't know if it was to get water or coffee or what, but he goes into the kitchen, and all of a sudden, wham, and his whole building just shudders. This is a big, beautiful building. I have video of this and so forth of it being struck. Two floors beneath him, a rocket, Hamas rocket, strikes his building, glass from the entire building is shattered had he been sitting at his desk had that struck just two minutes before he would have probably had glass all over his face all of the furniture in his apartment is destroyed he's the president of israel college of the bible the largest um uh, it's, it's an amazing bible college so if you haven't heard of it about 80 students it's kind of under the radar in israel but uh it's it's known you can see it on their website fantastic and you know I'm thinking of my brother I messaged him I said how you doing he said okay but he said man I can't even get anything done Uh, every every time I'm about ready to do anything the the sirens go off and I have to go back into the shelter just like you know come out of the shelter go back into the shelter all right so if you're Oleg and you read these first four words be anxious for nothing do they apply to him I think there's a There's proper fear, right? I mean, that that causes us to be careful. That is to be cautious. There's nothing wrong with being cautious, planning and all that. But there's a difference between that and anxiety that floods our soul. Be anxious for nothing. A mature response is to say, okay, I'm not there, but... I want to be, and how do I get there? Would you turn to Mark for the other cross-reference? Mark chapter 8. Mark does something in his gospel that is found in no other book of the Bible. He uses a literary technique that has been dubbed the Theological Sandwich. Nine times in the Gospel of Mark, he begins to tell an account of an event that happened in the life of Christ. He starts the account, and then he interrupts that account and inserts a separate event. So he tells the first half of the story, interrupts his story with another event, and then finishes the story on the back end. Why does he do that? Here's his purpose. The the bread of the sandwich, the two flanking halves, are to be interpreted by the central story. You can't understand the two outer halves without truly grappling with the middle not only does he do that nine times in the Gospel of Mark, but the entire Gospel of Mark is itself a tenth theological sandwich. For in the middle of this Gospel, from chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to the end of chapter 10, you have the meat or the central series of accounts that are that must be understood in order to interpret the rest of the book. So I'm taking us to the very beginning or just before the beginning of that center of the Gospel of Mark to help us to see where we may be in our own spiritual walk with the Lord. So in Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse fourteen and going down through verse twenty-one, Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, how bad it is, and how it should be avoided. And the disciples, whose job it is to feed the you know the, their group to have enough bread, start thinking, okay, oops, he's. Jesus is criticizing us because we only have one loaf with us and it's not enough to feed all 13 of us. And Jesus knows what they're thinking and what they're whispering and and so he he says, do you really not understand? All right, I had had five loaves and there were 5,000 people and, and I fed, 5,000 people with five loaves, and I had seven loaves, and there were 4,000, and I fed 4,000 with seven loaves of bread. How many loaves do we have in the boat? (laughs) We have one loaf. If I can do 5,000 with five loaves and 4,000 with seven loaves, even on a bad day, I think I can do 13 with one loaf. And he asked these questions. Now, I turn your attention to verse 17. Jesus, being aware of what's going on, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't just talking to the disciples, he's talking here to us. How well do we understand what it means to be a follower of Christ on the road or on the way? What does it mean to be a follower? He says, do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Now go down to verse 21. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? All right, when you read the Gospels and you look at the life of Christ, how does Jesus describe an unsaved person? He describes them as people who cannot understand. First Corinthians chapter 2, right? Verse 14. Uh, an unbeliever does not understand the cross. Can't understand it. An unbeliever does not understand. How does he describe, Jesus described the heart of an unbeliever? He would use the word hardened. How does he describe their ability to see spiritually? He would say they are blind. What about hearing? They are deaf. Jesus is asking four questions here, actually five, to the disciples, not to unbelievers. He says, do you you understand? Is your heart still hardened? Do you have eyes but yet can't see? Ears but cannot hear? they are acting like they're unbelievers. Now, are they? No. Well, one of them is. <laughs> I think they're all believers in Christ, but spiritually, in terms of level of maturity, it's not good. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. Not at all. And if we continue and look at the middle of this huge sandwich in the Gospel of Mark, we come in the first cycle in chapter 8 to Peter's response when Jesus says I am going to be captured flogged, scourged, killed and rise the third day. And what is the apostle Peter? What does he do? <laughs> he confronts Jesus. Absolutely not, Lord. I will not allow that to happen to you! Jesus, you don't, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> That's what Peter's saying. I know better. I'll take care of you, as if he had the power to do so, right? And Jesus, what does Jesus say? His, his rebuke, I mean, if Peter's rebuke is ridiculous, Jesus' rebuke is strong get thee behind me, Satan. Now, that's one strong rebuke. Now, he's not saying that, that Peter is an unbeliever when he calls him Satan. He's saying that's, that's, the, that's what Satan wants. Okay? You're speaking the words of Satan. And you go on to the second of the cycles in the middle of this uh, theological sandwich of Mark, and you have the disciples, all 12 of them, Without Jesus really being able to hear what they're saying, debating about what? Do you remember? Yeah, it's the old Barney Fife. You ever? You like Andy Griffith? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. It's, it's it's one of those, right? Like, yeah. I'm I'm big. I'm bad. I'm the best. They are literally. Jesus is telling them. I am going to die. Do you not understand? They're on the way to Jerusalem. This is the last trip. He's gonna be crucified shortly. And they're arguing about which one of them is the best. Mm. Now, are are they spiritually mature? It's so easy for us to look and say, well, they are. Hey, they've been in spiritual boot camp with Jesus now for over 3 years they are they've been in a spiritual greenhouse they've been growing unbelievably how how do they perceive themselves they perceive themselves as having it down even to the point where they can re, peter can rebuke Jesus having it down like I'm doing so well I think I'm ready to be like Jesus' right-hand man. You go to James and John 2 of the inner three of the circle, and in the third cycle, in chapter 10 of Mark, James and John are wanting to come to Jesus. In fact, they you know come to Jesus and they say, Lord, <clears throat> we're doing really well, aren't we? Tell you what, how- let's make a deal here, Jesus. <laughs> how about... My brother and me will be on your right and left hand in the kingdom. I'll be vice president. He'll be, uh, you know, general of the army, whatever. <laughs> whatever position you want to call it. Yeah, you know, we'll be on your right and left hand. And, at the, and that's when Jesus, he doesn't go off as in he's out of control. But I mean, for us, if we would have been sitting there and hearing the rebuke that's embedded there, It's just like, you guys, you really... And he said this three times. You don't understand. The first will be last and the last first. What are they? Are they believers or not? They're acting like unbelievers. It's like, do you really understand? Can you really see? They see, but how do they see? Verse 22 of chapter 8. Look there. Mark 8, verse 22. How do they see? There are two healings in Mark in this theological sandwich right in the middle. Two of them. One is the blind man of Bethsaida and the other is blind Bartimaeus. We're familiar much more with blind Bartimaeus because of children's stories and so forth. Maybe not as much with the blind man of Bethsaida, but there is a hugely important message in these two healings that, by the way, begin the middle of the theological punch and end the middle of the theological punch. They begin and end it for a reason. It's called bookends. They they put everything else in, in the center. So having eyes, verse 18, do you not see? How do they see? Verse 21, how is it you do not understand? How are you perceiving? and you have the first healing. He came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him, begged Jesus to touch this blind man. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, "Uh, rubbing his eyes, you know, I see men like trees walking. Is in other words, is this what it's supposed to be like?" Uh, again, was Jesus having a bad day here? You ever wondered about this, you know, parable? Oh boy, or not parable, but uh, healing. You know, oh boy. Mm ah, Jesus didn't, okay, something went wrong. Everybody does that once in a while. No, 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 whoa. There is absolutely nothing wrong here with Jesus or his ability to heal. This is done intentionally. I see men like trees walking. Verse 25, then he put his hands on, his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everything clearly his disciples how do they see how do they understand themselves how well they're doing they think they're doing great how are they doing well, they're seeing, they can see there is spiritual life there, but they are so deeply self-deceived that it's as, it's as if they're like this formerly completely blind man who now can see men like fuzzy shapes walking around, but that's all. Do you see where we're going here with this message? I've preached Philippians 4, 6, and 7 before, and I've wondered, how do I really communicate those first four words? Wouldn't it be wise to preface it with you know, 15, 20 minutes of setup? Now, turn back to Philippians, and let's expound in the minutes that remain these two verses be anxious for nothing the mature response here is to take that really seriously to say that is for me it's not for someone else and it's not for me 10 years down the road well you know pastor kurt you don't understand i just became a believer last year i mean i'm not ready for this yet no that's an immature response. A mature response is to say, okay, I need this. I don't understand maybe how to get there, but this is possible. Perfectly possible? Is there such a person who will never, ever struggle with anxiety? Then I would take you to James 3, not James 1, but James 3. You know, is there a, a, a human being alive who can perfectly bridle his own tongue? James says, no. Can, can a believer become mature when it comes to his tongue, his speech? Yes. Will he ever be perfect in it? No. Might I submit to you that that same application James makes there should be made here. Be anxious for nothing. We ought not to be Christians who are walking around spiritually biting our nails all the time. that is not what God intended that is not having rest you just heard the song sung okay the special music was talking about anxiety and so forth that is not God's plan for us If, if we're battered around from trial to trial and we're constantly worrying ladies what do you worry about most I asked my wife this question a little while ago. What do, you, what do you worry about most? She said, hands down, women, the number one worry is how about their kids, how they're going to turn out, how they're doing. That is, if you're uh, married and, and have children. Uh, the number one worry, you know, men, what's our number one worry? Probably it's related to our work. If you're retired, okay, maybe not. But, you know, if you're in work, if you're an old enough uh, uh, male to, to be working, and if you haven't been retired yet, probably your number one worry is, not just will you lose your job, but what is going on at work? Okay. Anxiety. Should we be living in the middle of anxiety? Should Oleg, you know, as, as the rockets hit his own building and the sirens are going off all the time. I mean, he didn't even have any furniture left. He said it's all like ruined. You can't live in the building, really. I mean, there the there are no windows in the whole building. It's hot, it's a mess over there. Should he be anxious? Protective, careful, living in the shelter when the sirens are going off. Yes, all those things, but anxious, anxiety, all right. Well, okay, if I need to be there, if if the mature response is, that's me, I need this, and I know I'm not there, or maybe you're saying, By God's grace, over the years, he has made me more mature. I hope that's the case, but it's not for all of us. I need this. I want this. I do want the peace of God that's in verse 7. Then then what do I do? How, How does this come about? All right, so let's read both verses. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Took us 20-some minutes to get to the main point of this text. What is it? It's this. The cure for anxiety is prayer that's what this is saying these two verses the cure for anxiety is prayer now that sounds really nice kind of sounds like you know a little bit trite like pat you on the back okay good yeah okay <laughs> prayer is really gonna help me and I've tried that been there done that I don't know how it really helped uh-huh okay yep so let's keep going Be anxious for nothing. It's a command. We're not supposed to be anxious. He said, all right, so what? Okay, like low-level worry, like mid-level anxiety. What about the big ones? Like rockets could hit my home and kill me. All right, can I be anxious about that? Eh, Sorry for the sound effect. Okay, No. Eh, eh, eh. low-level anxiety, mid-level, high-level anxiety, there ought not to be. Again, there's a proper fear Okay, I mean, that, that, we, that should motivate us to do things, but this is talking about improper anxiety, things that aren't just causing us to be careful in our, in our uh, workaday or living world, but are, um, are, are causing our souls to be buffeted like a wave of the sea driven with, by the wind and tossed back and forth in everything, not just the low-level worries, Put those away, even the rocket could hit my home level worries in everything. And then you see four words, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, request. It's really a big deal to understand those four words. All four of those words could be translated, by the way, with the word prayer. He could say, you know, Um, by prayer and prayer with prayer, let your prayers be made known to God. But obviously he's not just trying to emphasize just the generic idea of prayer. First word is that. Okay, if you find anxiety rising in your soul, then what do you do? The first word is the blanket term, prayer. Go to God in prayer. What do we normally, or maybe, maybe hopefully not, but what do we sometimes do? We don't, we don't, we skip <laughs> the second and third words so and we go right to word four request. Let, our, let your request be made known to God. Come to prayer. God help me. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Uh uh-uh. uh. Ain't going to happen. Uh-uh. Prayer jumping right to the requests. You're, you might as well have a circle with a line through it. You're not going to find the peace of God. Why? Because the second and third nouns there, prayer, supplication, second noun, thanksgiving, third noun, and requests, those second and third ones, are so vital. If you, wanna, if you want to, for anxiety to uh, be gone from your soul, then th- grappling with those two are the big deal. So we better understand what those two words mean. Have you used the word supplication in your speech in the last week? Month? Year? <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah, it's a word we don't use very much. Maybe not at all. So what does it mean? Here's what it means. It means being a beggar. It means... Being born without maybe legs and living in a third world country where the whole family tries to pitch in and provide a little bit of food, you go out and work in whatever you can do, and whatever you bring home, you put it in the family, you know, kitty, and you take that money and mom goes to the market that day day and buys the rice and vegetables or whatever, a little bit of fruit and brings it home from the money you made that day. And that then is your evening meal and then tomorrow. Day by day. You're born without legs and what are you doing? You're sitting on the side of the road and hoping that somebody Will be so kind as to give you a little money so that you can contribute to your family food for the day. Now, supplicant, supplication and supplicant, you and I, we have to understand we are that boy who was born without legs. Look, if you can fix the thing that would otherwise cause you to have anxiety, then go and fix it, right? But if you cannot fix it, then what do you do? You have to. You must to have the peace of God. You must come to grips with this thought. I'm a beggar. It's not in my hands. I don't hold the reins here. I can't fix this problem. My teenager is—I'm fearful for what's going to happen to him or her. My job—it's going haywire. If you just knew what my boss was doing to me, or I am the boss, and if you knew what the—or—or uh, or the coworkers are talking behind my back. I'm a Christian. I tried to witness to them, and now they're picking on me. I've had that happen when I was younger. Okay, Yeah. What do you do? Well, you have to realize, hey, if the situation is too big for me to fix, then I have to realize who I am and where I am. Come to grips with that and understand that there is some kind of a purpose in this Being in my life. And then we focus on the third word there, thanksgiving. That's the hard one, right? Yeah. That is the hard one. Understanding we're a supplicant and we can't fix the problem, that's not necessary. Just coming to that conclusion is important, but thanksgiving's the hard one. Now look, Paul is not saying, be thankful that Be thankful for the thing that is creating the anxiety. He's not saying that. What he's saying is is much more theologically deep than that. He is saying, be thankful that God is with you, that he knows you can handle whatever it is that's in front of you, because otherwise he wouldn't put it there. First Corinthians ten thirteen. There is no trial that, that is taken, you know, come upon your life that is bigger than you can handle. You, God is always going to make a way to escape. You will be able to handle it. There is nothing that can come into life that is too big to handle apart from God's grace. It's too big for us to handle without grace, but with God's grace. So I'm not thankful when the trial comes for the trial itself. Bigger than that, deeper than that. Thankful that God is purifying me, that he has a purpose. By the way, don't get hung up on the retribution principle. Huh? (laughs) Retribution principle, what's that? When things are going well, that means I'm walking right with the Lord. And when things aren't going well and there are trials in my life, obviously... There's got to be some kind of hidden sin somewhere. God is punishing me. What is it that he's punishing me about? I've really got to figure, I don't know what it is. What is he, if things, if there are trials in my life, he's punishing me. If things are going well, then I'm doing well. I'm doing good. That's the retribution principle. That is such a faulty idea. I mean, it might be true that God is spanking Hebrews chapter 12, uh, a believer who's, who's, Uh, seriously wayward that's a possibility but much more likely he is purifying okay us through the trial so being thankful that God is in control and that he will bring me through it understanding that the trial itself is going to grow me once we have come to God in prayer we realize, hey, we're beggars. We can't fix this. And we come to grips with that. And then we get to the point where we're thankful and say, God, I know that you have a purpose. Then we make a request. And what happens? The peace of God will flood our souls. We only have a couple minutes left, so let's finish verse 7. And the peace of God, there are A few in here who know Greek, this is a genitive construction. For everyone else, who cares what it is in Greek, right? When you see two nouns separated by the word of, much of the time, there are about 30 different ways that you can interpret it. Now, don't let that boggle your mind. About 27 of them don't work for sure, okay? So you're almost all, that's the the good news. You can get rid of about 27 options. The bad news is there are usually two, three, or four options that are left. I think there are three options that are left. After you get rid of all the other possibilities for what the peace of God might be. What are those three? First, an objective peace. In other words, because I'm saved, I can have peace. I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think Paul's saying that. Second, is subjective peace. This is the way some people take it. I can have a subjective feeling of peace that comes over my soul even when I would otherwise be anxious if I you know, go to God in prayer and realize I'm a supplicant and am thankful and make my request. Could be that, and it might be, but I don't think so. I think instead it's descriptive. If it is, this is really pretty cool if I could use that word to describe this does god metaphorically speaking bite his nails up in heaven (laughs) oh man he must be looking at my problem and oh boy how in the world am i gonna you know is god up there how in the world am i gonna fix john or jane's problem here i don't know if i can't no that's ridiculous ridiculous god's not up in heaven metaphorically biting his nails when it says the peace of God it's saying you can experience the same kind of peace that God himself has total serenity in the midst of a storm yes and when that happens what will also happen it'll surpass all understanding unsaved people they won't understand it like Pastor, uh, his first name is Vitslav in Russia. Who, in October, going out and making his rounds, delivering food to really, really needy people during COVID lockdown. We're talking a lot of starvation going on over there. So he's out doing rounds. He has diabetes, and as he's doing rounds, his he doesn't you know his, his leg is rubbing, and he ends up with a little sore. So he takes care of the sore. Puts a patch on it and medicine and so forth. He just isn't paying attention. One day he wakes up and his foot is absolutely throbbing. Looks down at his toes in the morning and they're hugely swollen and inflamed red. So he goes to the hospital and it's really bad. They say if we do not take care of this immediately, you're going to die for gangrene had now set in you say wow that fast I guess with diabetes it's possible so he's got infection running up they only did a local anesthetic I'd want to be knocked out but anyway they did only a local anesthetic so he's there I just not he is there having most of his foot amputated and he asks the surgeons may I pray may I sing a song I mean He's trying to work, witness and work to that with them and use this situation. He's not the least bit worried. The people, because you know, they have large rooms with lots of beds in them instead of maybe like a private room like we would experience, lots of beds. The people in there cannot believe what's going on in this man's life, and he's using this as an opportunity to share the gospel. They don't get it. This is a peace that just blows the mind. It it passes all understanding. And this kind of peace will do what? It'll guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So, here in conclusion, what does it do? It guards. This kind of peace, that word guard there is a noun. In Greek, it's talking about something really specific. It's a military term. Is talking about you know what the keep is in a castle, so the castle has the outer walls. It's where the archers will be and the hot boiling oil will be and you know where soldiers will be just on the inside. If the if the if the gate is breached, there'll be soldiers with sword in the medieval period. You know soldiers with swords there and all kinds of things. Okay, so that's the outer wall. What is this word? This word is not the whole fortress, and it's not the outer wall. It is instead the keep. What's the keep? If the outer wall is breached, then the VIPs go to the keep, the middle tower that has its own separate defenses. That's this word. So what is it saying? You can experience the kind of peace that God has, which just blows people's minds when you're going through it. And it's so powerful that it's as if your heart, your emotions, and your mind, your thoughts, are placed inside of the the safest part of the fortress. And by the way, this is... Philippians the Philippi had one of these fortresses just down the road from where these Christians are reading it is one of the the Roman legion lives there this is a retirement village for Roman officers okay it's a really nice place and it's on the main road there's a huge legion here you're talking a safe place to be and if they see enemy coming there's a rider sent to Rome they're going to bring more soldiers if you can get into the fortress you're probably in good shape if you're in the keep you're in really good shape but you know what It's not, in this verse, it's not Roman soldiers who are guarding your heart and mind, putting you at peace of mind and soul. Who is guarding? Who's on guard? Christ Jesus. That's pretty amazing. The cure for anxiety is prayer. The mature response is to look at this text and say, you know what I believe God by his grace as I've seen multiple trials happen in my life he's brought me a long way long way it's not me it's God in me praise God some of us are going to be saying that there are others who are here and right now you know your soul is just buffeted every single day by worry it's as if you're just Pushed one way and then the next. And you cannot get in it, just doesn't seem like it's even possible to be in control of the anxiety spikes that are striking you like lightning in a bad storm. It is possible. Don't say the immature response is to say, "Ah, I'll never get there. It's not for me. It may be for others, but I can't get there. That is not the mature response. That's I see men like trees walking. I see fuzzy, blurry figures, but I don't see. That's where the disciples were, believers, but not very mature, even though they thought they were. If you have anxiety spikes regularly, every day, all the time, you're worry, 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 you need this. You need to go to those two words, supplication and thanksgiving, and meditate on those for a long time time because the cure for anxiety is prayer prayer does change things and what it may change is not necessarily the trial you're in all you want is escape that may not be God's plan his plan may be for you to stay in the trial so what must change if if after prayer the trial hasn't changed then what must change it's you it's your soul supplication thanksgiving let's pray Our Lord today we (laughs) I myself have these lightning strikes of anxiety I hope not every day there may be some here who through their lifelong walk with you have experienced a real serenity of soul a trust in You that has, it's just so deep that they just don't worry like they used to. They just know that you're in control and that you love them. And they're thankful even when trial comes, even if it doesn't go away. But Lord, there are no doubt some here who struggle all the time with anxiety. For them, dear Lord, Help them to find your peace, the peace that you possess. May your grace be sufficient right now. And put them on that road with you. Help them to walk with Christ, to follow him, to learn, really know what it means to follow him. And then remove that anxiety so that they can have the kind of serenity of soul that no matter what storm blows around them, They are yours, and you are theirs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.